This episode of Wakefield Sessions as part of the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast is brought to you by Nicosi Bistro Pub, French cuisine infused with indigenous ingredients. The newest addition to the Wakefield culinary scene, located at 721 Riverside Drive in the heart of the village. Go to NicosiBistroPub.com for more. And this episode is also brought to you by Danny Sivier, chartered real estate broker with Remax. Located downtown Wakefield with over 30 years of experience, Danny Sivier, a realtor you can trust. Go to udawayhomes.com for more information. And lastly, Wakefield Sessions this week is also brought to you by Cafe 1870, located at 715 Riverside Drive. Your home away from home in the Gatineau Hills, and also home of the legendary open stage music nights every Wednesday from 9 p.m. And now, on to the show. It's Tuesday, September 26th, and you're listening to a brand new episode of the Julian Dehan Comedy Hour podcast. On today's episode, Wakefield Sessions continues with my guest, literal living legend, literal living legend, Ian Tamblin is my guest. He's, uh, he's, uh, I mean, what, to, what, to, if, if, you know how they say some people need no introduction? If I was to properly introduce Ian Tamblin, Mr. Ian Tamblin, we would not have, a, it would be all introduction, be an hour and a half intro and then a 30 second interview and then we'd wrap it up. He's uh, one of the best doing it. He's working on his 40th and 41st album simultaneously. We cover it. We go deep. We go far and wide. And it all starts now. Yes, coming at you from Lemon Press Studios in the Gatineau Hills. Hi, hi, hi. How are you today? Are you doing well? Good. I'm glad. I didn't even give you the time to answer. Hold on. How are you? Are you Are you okay? That was too long of an answer. Feel free to leave some details out. All right. I just need a a quick Hey, how are you? Good. That's you know the you know the way people say it and they don't care. Everybody's good. How are you? Good. You good. How are you? Good. Good. Once in a while you get a person that says well. And you know that's loaded. When you go, "Hey, how are you doing?" They go, "I'm well, thank you." You know that's loaded. That's like uh uh, uh they're teaching you a grammar lesson. You know it. Cuz they learned the hard way. Because saying I'm doing good is not grammatically correct, of course, but we say it. I'm good. I'm doing good. Every once in a while, though, you get someone that says, I'm well. And they look at you. There's like this half second of stare down. 
where they go, do you understand what I'm saying? I'm well. I'm being grammatically correct. This is a lesson. I'm judging you a little bit. Look for it. Next time someone asks you, how are you doing? You go, good. You? I'm well. And there's that stare, that borderline judgy, this is a lesson in life, pay attention stare. I'm doing well. Yeah, that's the way, that's what you meant to say. Because that's the way, that's what you have to do. You have to be correct. All the time. Those are the same people, by the way, that say mature. Oh, he's so mature. I myself have matured. I've matured so much that I am well because of it. Uh, just a waste of time. Shit. Welcome back. By the way, Wakefield Sessions continues. This this series has taken on a life of its own, and holy shit. My guest today, legend, and I don't, you know, that word is tossed around a little bit too much. He's a legend, she's a legend. No, I, I mean, really think of what a legend is. Somebody that is talked about, will be talked about is just doing prolific, amazing things. And my guest today, Ian Tamblin, Ian fucking Tamblin, uh, today. And, um, oh my God. I mean, uh, legend works here because this guy is currently working on his 40th and 41st simultaneously album, music album. Who, who has 40, 41 albums? Do you have... No, legends do. And this guy, oh my God, Ian Tamlin, he's he's a creative powerhouse. He's one of those people that you meet. If you're in any creative field, you meet Ian Tamlin and you go, well, I better just go work for the government. I'm, I'm wasting my time. This guy's written 16 plays. These... Like, how much creativity can one person... And by the way, knocking it out of the park with each one. Like, I don't know. I don't know. So, Ian, if you're listening to this, fuck. What? I, I quit everything. Thank you for that. Thank you for making the rest of us feel unworthy. I mean, because there's this whole thing with creativity where you, if you're a creative type, you procrastinate, you kind of, I don't know. And then people like Ian Tamblin come along and go, yeah, well, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm just working on my 40th and 41st album simultaneously. You go, shit, I'm, I'm having a hard time pumping out these episodes every day. And that's like an hour to three hours work per episode. I mean, 41 albums? Are you... I, I, we had a great interview and I forgot to ask. Are you autistic? Like, what's... what's? Are you the rain man of music, Ian Tamblin? Call me. Let me know. And uh, anyway, we have a great interview, great chat. And uh, again, if you're in a creative field, I mean, turn it off because you'll be... You'll be... You won't... <laughs> No, he's he's a great, great guy with a. He's a good storyteller. I mean, that's he's a storyteller in in song and in my. He's a playwright and an adventurer. What's an adventurer? Well, you're gonna find out in the interview. Okay, it's gonna be happening soon. It's still like a million degrees outside. Late September, and uh, it's like thirty three degrees or some shit. What what? I uh I I I used to do this I used to do this thing on stage and it kind of applies right now where extreme weather it kind of you know it's kind of good on the spot you know we're enjoying 
mid 30s degrees Celsius, by the way. That's like 600 Fahrenheit. Now, I don't know the conversion for any American listen- listeners. By the way, just convert. The rest of the world is on Celsius. You just convert, okay? Uh, 33, I don't know. It's in the 90s, maybe? It's hot. And it's not supposed to be this time of year. And, you know, you can attribute it to whatever, climate change or... You know, climate change is happening, by the way. The, the planet is getting warmer every year. Every year it breaks records from the previous year. And and it's kind of like, you know, 33 degrees in late September, almost October. Feels a lot. It's kind of like uh, finding a wad of cash on the street. You know, it feels good on the spot. You're like, oh my God, this is nice. Look at this. Look at this. Did not expect this. But deep down inside, you know that we're all going to fucking die. You know that feeling? That's how I feel when it's 30, 32 degrees, almost October. Anywho, so let's get to my guest. I'm going to go straight to the interview because this is a good... I <laughs> See how, how, how... Actually, I'm glad I tripped up on my words because I want to add uh, Wakefield, October 12th, Thursday, October 12th, in a week and a half, I guess, in a week and a bit. I don't know. October 12th, just come on out to Le Ibu for an evening of stand-up comedy with Jen Grant, myself... Mr. Don Kelly and Wendy Reed. It's going to be a barn burner of a show. You don't want to miss it. Don Kelly from CBC Debaters and Comics on Comedy Network and Comedy Now and Halifax Halifax Comedy Festival, Winnipeg Comedy Festival, Just for Laughs. He's one of the best in the biz. And uh, Wendy Reed, also super, super funny, travels all over to do comedy. Jen Grant and myself. It's going to be, it's going to be a good show. Le Ibu. October 12th, 8.30, here in Wakefield. Okay, and now, and now, enjoy my chat with the one, the only, the affable, the legendary, Ian Tamblin. You and me below, just like the flowers, laughing all day long. People I need to lose, sing a little song, then take a shower, Julian Dion. And yes, like I mentioned off the top of this episode of the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast, Wakefield Sessions is brought to you by Wakefield's own Nicosi Bistro Pub, the newest addition to the Wakefield culinary scene. Oh man, this place, they hit it all. They hit atmosphere, they hit the service, they hit... The food right out of the park. Creative drinks, authentic food, and an authentic experience. Whether you're sitting on one of their covered bridge benches, I'm telling you, these people are Wakefield through and through. Enjoying some pulled duck sliders and their woodsy atmosphere, this place is very much a part of Wakefield. The food is both comforting and creative at the same time. Their Nicosi poutine, arguably one of the best in the area with hand-cut fries, duck confit, cheese curds, and green peppercorn gravy. I'm hungry just thinking about it, just talking about it right now. Nicosi is a restaurant that really tries to make everyone feel comfortable and welcome. Bring your kids, bring everybody. Come on down to Nicosi 721 Riverside Drive in Wakefield. And right now they're making big preparations for Thanksgiving weekend just around the corner. So call today, make some reservations, whether it's for Thanksgiving or your holiday parties. That's right, it's that time of year. you got to start thinking of Christmas and New Year's and all that good stuff. Call 819-459-3773 for reservations. Or go check out their menus at nicosibistropub.com. 
And yes, once again, this episode is brought to you by Cafe 1870, located at 715 Riverside Drive in Wakefield. Be sure to drop by for one of their legendary Caesars. That's right, little little hair the dog action. Nobody does it better than Cafe 1870. Come on in for a full menu every day from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eat in or take out. Come take in some live music every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And of course, home of the legendary open stage every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. I personally have witnessed some true magic moments in that place. It's cozy, it's rustic, a little throwback. Truly one of the social cornerstones of this community. Cafe 1870 will be celebrating their 10th anniversary on November 1st. So once again, drop by, have a Caesar. Have a beer, enjoy some live music. Cafe 1870, your home away from home. Plan six of life, Ethel, here she comes again. Come look and see, there's a monkey round the bend. Lord love duck, she's odd duck at that. She was a gypsy in that dress and hat. I hear she lives with 18 cats. You imagine 18 cats. Says she runs a boarding house in Simcoe, Cross James Bay. Told she was a painter. Can you imagine that? Who would live with a gypsy? Paints with 18 cats Someone says she's famous Oh look, she's looking now Got her paintings in a gallery Lord protect us how I guess there's no accounting For Jesus the good Lord knows If she is so famous Then why them shabby clothes Duck head back. 
think she was a gypsy in that dressed and hat. I think she was a gypsy all dressed up like that. Yes, and that that you heard just there, of course, is my guest today. He sits across from me in Lemon Press Studios here, and uh, that is um, that is from his album, one of his many, many, many albums, which we'll get into, uh, Walking in the Footsteps, Celebrating the Group of Seven, and that was Through Lace Curtains. I really like that. Who was singing with you on that one? Chris McLean. Chris McLean. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. It was nice. I like that a lot. And often people say, this guy needs no introdu- introduction, and... Uh, I really don't know where to begin as far as an introduction goes because it would be longer than the interview probably to go through. <laughs> I, I'm very old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this guy is a legend just by by his his body of work alone speaks for, for itself. And um, I mean, let's just get into it. I'm super excited. He's an award-winning musician. He's a playwright. He's a, an adventurer, which I also want to get into. Ian... Tamblin is here. Actually, Ian fucking Tamblin is here. How are you, man? I'm well. Good. Thanks for thanks for agreeing to do this. I appreciate it. Your name came up um, a lot of times because this is uh, so. I've had the podcast for a few years, and this is um, Wakefield Sessions. So interviewing people that you know, you can go ahead and eat well, that banana bread. Doesn't banana matter. bread. You know, I'm just going to open it up here. I, yeah. just, I didn't realize that the cellophane would mix. <laughs> So much noise. Oh, speaking of cellophane, oh my, okay, so I met up with Ian on, um, was it Friday morning? Or, yeah, Friday morning. Friday to, morning. To get some, uh, so we lined up this interview. Well, just to go back, Wakefield Sessions is my way to introduce Wakefield to the world. So on the podcast, I talk about my life a lot, and, and uh, obviously Wakefield has come up more than once over the years, and this is my way to introduce Wakefield to the world. And for locals, they get to really know um, the guests. They might know you. They might have been to shows, but now they'll really, really know you. We're going to go deep. <laughs> and uh, so I met Ian on on Friday, and he gave me a, a like a bread bag full of albums and like 15 of them. I did wish you a good weekend. <laughs> 15 albums to, uh, to listen to. I didn't get through nearly all. I thought that would be fine, but it was... Um, and by the way, 15 albums, that would be somebody's entire career. That is a third of of uh, what you've done as far as albums go you're now recording your 40th 41st yeah simultaneously yeah well you want to know why i gave them to you why because i've been in interviews where i've come in and the interviewer the first question is well i haven't really heard your work oh my god <laughs> I, oh my god i heard your work i've <laughs> it's gone through me i've, but I've I, I just thought it would be good to to sort of give you a chance <laughs> A ch- you gave me a thesis, but the most daunting part was getting through all that cellophane all weekend. I was like, just going oh, through. <laughs> you need to have a knife. Yeah. You know. Uh, so I got good at opening um, mm-hmm. CDs. Either that or a long thumbnail. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I found I would roll my thumb on along the back until it get little waves in it, ripples, and then rip it open. You know, they won't, they won't let you sell them in retail if you don't have that stupid stuff on it. Yeah. And I guess there is, believe, oddly enough, there is some structural integrity to cellophane. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> People want, they want a virgin album. Right. And I've tried to get away from it, but they won't let you put it in stores unless there is cellophane on it. Right. Well, I guess you could sell the ones without at shows or something. Or, I do. Yeah, yeah. I do. Sign them or 
Yeah. Whatever. Anyway, you're here now, so thanks for doing this. Uh, let's get to know you. Let's get to um, to to let's just get down to it. All right. So you're working right now on your 40th and 41st album, which is insane. And um, you started your first album was in 1976. Is that it? No, actually, it was when I was at Trent University. Um, we had a friend of mine, Ken Ham, and I grew up in Thunder Bay, and you know, at the time we're kind of interested in, in recording, and this book came out, uh, the Whole Earth Catalog, and it, the subtitle was Access to Tools. And I'm looking at your all that you've got right here as a result from that beginning technology. There was a Tascam home recorder that was just out on the market in 1969. It was not easy to find in Canada, but we ended up finding one. And so recorded my first album using that first independent step uh, in technology, which is which is how you can do this in your house now. Yeah, well, we were talking about that on Friday, how technology now, uh, you can it's so accessible. You can get away with with uh, a lot and not necessarily remortgage your house. Was it was it a reel-to-reel? Your, yeah, it was year? a reel-to-reel, but it was, you know, the first of its sight because I, before that, it, everything was sort of privileged, if you will, mm-hmm. and in, in expensive studios and so much. And then you were tied to a record company and all the rest of that, and... We were kind of interested in exploring other sort of hippie ways of doing things, yeah. <laughs> independent things. <laughs> so I we did the, that album in 1970, 71. Okay. And then when did Moose Tracks come out? That was it. Oh, that was it. Okay. Yeah, All right. That was it. Yeah. And, uh, cause, and there was 200 copies of that made, and you hand-stamped Moose Tracks on each and every one of them. Yeah, it was sort of... Uh, Borrowed from the Who's Live at Leeds album. Right. Same idea. Yeah, yeah. I just saw that stamp and did it. And then they didn't really sell <laughs> well. So the last 50, I, I sort of forget the guy's name, Jerry somebody, steal this book. The guy wrote steal this book. I forget his name. Uh, so I just put them in, in, there was a record store in Ottawa called Treble Class. So I just uh, wrote on the album, steal this album. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't really work either. <laughs> I mean, I found some of them still in there three years later. Is that right? Yeah. And why, uh, was your family musical? I mean, how are you so... Because you're beyond musical. I mean, you, uh, you just no, I don't, To be honest with you, I don't think I am. I, I think I'm a storyteller. It's, you know, I like... I love music. I'm, you know, it was the only thing that I could ultimately do. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I'm, I, I mean, I know natural musicians, you know, who are just phenomenal. I'm not one of those, I, I, for sure. Well, you're a song, so you would peg yourself more of a writer uh, part. I, I guess so. I mean, I love music, but yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not uh, an accomplished musician by any means. I'm, you know, well, what do you mean? I mean, you're Juno, you've, you've won so many awards and you've been, you are accomplished. Well, you know as well as I do, those, I mean, those were... A Juno Award based on sales in yeah, many, right. many cases, but that I don't know. It's just my. I've always sort of thought I've been very fortunate to find melodies, but I don't think of myself as a and I make my living as a musician and soundtracks and stuff like that. But I'm not. You know, I don't read music. I you know, I'm, uh, some things 
harmonies stymie me and <laughs> that's interesting things like that you know so i i you know it's that same debate is bob dylan a great musician i think he is a great musician but I, at, like in a technical sense of being a musician he's he's primitive and so am i right 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 and it, it's interesting how um you know they say artists you always kind of feel like uh not a fraud but you feel like you're faking it and you feel like you're it's a common thing that you feel like you're gonna get someone's gonna bust you and go wait you're not you're not the thing no that was before i uh, i had a great deal of trouble in school real mm -hmm. trouble and I, I was convinced at some point someone was going to come up and tell me stop trying so hardy and you you are mentally disadvantaged I've, <laughs> i just i really thought that would happen and i then i could relax but i didn't but in terms of music i've i've never struggled with like you know, I touch wood with melodies, mm -hmm. with songs. I've always been, um, it's always been, I've been very fortunate to find the melodies. And uh, I think they're there in the same sense as uh, like an Inuit sculptor that I, I met said that the, the form that he comes out with is already in the rock. And in some sense, because I, most of my work is melody, is lyrically driven i've been for really lucky to find the melodies that are in those lyrics and is it one of those things where it just comes to you like you kind of just are a channel or conduit it just kind of all of a sudden you wake up and you have this melody in your head and you have the lyrics and it just kind of marry the both or not really um i get sort of have a pool of of musical things that i do while the lyrics are are lingering somewhere else and floating around yeah there's somebody else is writing them yeah and and but then i get various moods or things like that or or territories i guess and and remember them and then adapt them and in some cases you know like the song that you started with i mean that's coming from a uh, a skiffle and jug band uh form from the 1930s so you draw on 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 your influences and what you know as well you know that so I saw Emily Carr in that song, you know, in the 1920s, walking down the street, with, you know, with her shopping cart and her monkey on her shoulder. I mean, you know, that's <laughs> it just so you end up having that kind of that that melodies there waiting in, right. in her walk down the street. She was a uh, she was a stout woman. And so <laughs> you have you kind of have get that walk in the music. How many albums do you do uh, on at like one a year about on average? It some years too. And sometimes, you know, uh, just I'm thinking off the, my head from 82 to 86, I didn't do any because there was a recession and uh, I was doing a lot of theater soundtracks, so there was a four-year period where I didn't have an album out. I mean, and and someone who has 40 working on 41 uh, 41st album is, does that come from uh, having something to prove or something? Like, did something ever happen in your life where, where maybe doubt was, was cast upon you, where you had to, I don't know. Oh, it still is. I'm still driven either by, by worrying about failure or just sheer anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm totally driven by anger. You're an angry person deep down? I would say. 
Yeah. Where yeah. Where does that come from? Um, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. How but, is it growing up in Thunder Bay? It's a tough town. It's a great town. Mm-hmm. It's a great um, town for creative torque. I mean, I was talking about it last night. And it's really unique. It's in the middle of North America. And yet I remember, you know, as a teenager working uh, midnight to eight on on the sh- salties, on the ships that would be coming from Poland, from uh, Germany, in the center of North America. And so we had this port life in the middle of a boreal forest. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. there's just a lot of, you know, a lot of things were going on. Plus it was a large sort of socialist Finnish community. All these things interacted and 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 played into what the town's character was. Did you, were you an outdoorsy person from a young age? Because a lot of your music has the common thread of nature. I mean, you, 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 your lyrics talk of trees and mountains and lakes and bays. And so did you always have this affinity for nature in the outdoors? Where, where does that come from? Well, growing up on Lake Superior, you, you know, it's, it's a challenge that's there before you. And, uh, the north shore of Lake Superior is is a very compelling place, and so you can't avoid it. If you if you grow up there, if you do avoid it, you shouldn't be there. You should be in a more urban place. But if you are, if you take on Northwestern Ontario, you're you're going to go that way. Yeah. And just thinking about it, I mean, when I was in grade eight, grade seven, grade eight, the lake froze over, but there was no snow, so. Um, my dad built uh, two ice boats, Detroit uh, news ice boats, and we would sail them, you know, over to Isle Royal, in the middle of Lake Superior, in March. It was, wow. you know, outrageous. Yeah. But we could do it because uh, we were going eighty or 90, 90 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. You could do it in forty-five, fifty minutes. Wow. So, and so we were out there. <laughs> you're out there. So that that came from a young age. You were always kind of exposed to it. Yeah, I think so, for I, sure. For I sure. find that people that are, when you grow up in nature, you always have to have that connection to it. Whether at some point in your life you move to an urban center, like a big city or whatever, you always have to come back to it. There was a conscious part of it, too, because, you know, so many of the, the you know, the singer-songwriters that I was working with around, you know, there was a mythology and a, you know, of broken relationships and bar stools, and I just didn't want to go that way. Mm-hmm. You know, there was enough of those songs, you know, um, and they're they're good songs. And I, so I, I sort of set off. Um, my approach, in many ways, was romantic, but uh, I just wanted to go another way. Mm-hmm. And um, I, but I still do write romantic songs you know and i will write uh been on the road too long song but (laughs) not too many right what uh was the guitar the first instrument you picked up no piano piano yeah piano is like a good jumping off point for anything i mean once you master that you can kind of pretty much do anything well there was a guy who came over for dinner one time and he was a jazz piano player and i had taken a few lessons before that but not much and but he just showed me some stuff because I was noodling on the piano and he showed me, you know, some uh, blues stuff and a couple of sort of jazzy things. Without having to read it. It was just like... No, kinda... it was just showed me. 
Yeah. And, and uh, that was, was good. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I lived just down the street from Paul Schaefer. So oh, no way. Paul Schaefer yeah. would always come over. My parents no would, would have these parties, and they'd call Bernie and Shirley and ask Paul to come and play a couple of Broadway musicals. So I was always in the standing in the shadow. Like, Paul could hear something once, yeah, and, and he, he'd play it. Oh, he's just unbelievable. Yeah, you know, like he, he, yeah. he always had that ability. So, you know, if Brigadoon or Sound of Music came out, he was on it within 30 seconds. He, wow. he was much loved in Thunder Bay. Yeah, I bet. So you had kind of those early influences. to, to <laughs> Like you had front row seats to... Dude, I was influenced by someone younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I mean, when you see a guy like Paul Schaefer going, I mean, that just drives you to... I mean, some someone that's so good and so passionate at what they do, you just go, "I want to do that," right? Well, I I did happen to read his autobiography, and and his mom and dad were quite fascinating people because they grew up in Thunder Bay, but they were fascinated by Las Vegas. Now, what set of parents takes their kid to Las Vegas when he's eleven years old? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they took Paul to Las Vegas because Bernie, who was a lawyer in Thunder Bay. He believed that interesting things happened after midnight. Right. He was absolutely right. But to take your son out at age 11, so, so like Paul, one of Paul's heroes is Wayne Newton. <laughs> just, yeah. Yeah. That's hilarious. And so you start playing the piano, and then you're noodling around. Yeah. And at what point do you get the bug to go, shit, I, I got... I, I want to do this. Is it even a conscious thing or you just kind of, it just evolves into this organic thing? It was pretty conscious. I, I finished university and I had basically been in university. I worked as a groundskeeper at, at Trent. So I was, was in school 12 months a year. Right. So I ended up, you know, you know, getting my honors BA with a couple of majors. And uh, at that point, I was booked out. I had read so many books. I had all the twitches of of an undergraduate I was finished I was finished with the intellectual yeah. world and so Amanda and I my partner still uh, headed across Canada and, and on tour and played until there was no money is that right yeah. so what were you doing you were playing guitar she was singing or what? no no Amanda was Amanda was uh, <laughs> was accompanying me okay she did play auto harp for a while but oh, yeah? she denies that <laughs> I find the common thread for really good um, songwriters is people that are really well-read. Well, I think that's true because, you know, I, uh, I had my intention was to be a short story writer. I really liked William Saroyan and uh, Steinbeck, later on Tobias Wolfe. Um, they were all, all great. Jim Harrison. And I wanted to do that, and it, but it didn't work out that way. I still think I would like to write, write well, short in a, stories. In a way, you do write short stories in your in your songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was this the what was this the sixties when you first went on tour and you were seventy one, seventy two, seventy one, seventy two. Yeah. But when you started um, playing the guitar and making this uh, a thing that you thought you would focus on, and that was in to, high school, right? Yeah, in part because. And there's so much good music coming out back then. Well, our band on Saturday night was Neil Young and the Squires. Yeah, is that We'd right? We'd go and see them every weekend. Is that right? Yeah. 
You had a residency somewhere? In Thunder Bay, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Holy shit. He stayed at, what was it, the Seaview Motel in Port Arthur. <laughs> he was quite a character. And even then, you could see his, um, you, you could see the future. We were just waiting for it to happen. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. He, that must have been unbelievable. And he was, in some sense, there was, I was thinking about this. He was not unlike Katie Lang. Mm-hmm. Not so much in the singing, of course, but Neil was a complete character because if he wasn't playing or writing, he was looking at uh, in use clothes shops to be for the fringe jackets, and he was totally conscious of a complete look. It was a complete look in the same way when Katie Lang first came out, you know, she had this cowgirl thing. She was totally conscious of, of... who she was and how styling she was. That was all part of it. So the sort of casualness of Neil Young's look, which is still, you know, which affected the 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 grungers. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. That, and still, you know, what is it called? The, what do they call those? The metrosexuals. Oh, the hipsters. The uh, hipsters uh, yeah. the, in the urban, you know, with the bush jackets on yeah. and all that. Well, that's still partly Neil Young. I mean, he... Right. He, he was always looking for the fringe jacket and, and the beat-up jeans. Do you think that's a little more of a business element than an artistic element when it comes to the whole package? I think people have it. Like I was reading, reading Keith Richards' autobiography and Eric Clapton's, which I don't recommend, but oh, no? they're all interested in the whole package and the clothes like right down to the inseam of your pants and everything you know they were styling guys and and music was was part of it but so was how they dressed if you think of the early the mods and and beatles and versus the rolling stones there was a they're making choices and the yeah. cho- choices besides musical choices were visual choices as well so okay, because of the visual element, then it can kind of fall into that artistic category. Because sometimes that's kind of not frowned upon, I guess, for lack of a better word. But people really like to separate the art and business when it comes to somebody. And it's almost like if you have too much of that business sense, which is insane, other artists will see that as kind of like a not a sellout, but just kind of they they, they really like that separation. You know, it's true, and so you end up, you know, with. Uh Neil with Elliot Roberts or someone who can do the nasty work. Right. And, you know, but you still need that person. Oh, hell yeah, you do. It, you, you know, you need that person. If at the very least you don't have that person, you need kind of that sense to, it is a business. And I mean, if you're going to have, make any sort of living off of it, you have to see it uh, that way. Yeah, I, I, I certainly never, I, I had a manager at one time, very nice man, uh, but I went on my own way and and suffered the consequences. I never had, I never had any management or even a person booking me. Right. <laughs> so you do all that. You've been doing that for years and years on your own. S- sadly, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you have a great business sense uh, too because when you go on your website, everything's there, all of your works, and you're easy to reach as far as your contact info is there. So can pe- people can, excuse me, sort of find you. And that is important. I mean, obviously, you've uh, carved out a great career for yourself doing it on your own. I've been very fortunate. I've been really fortunate. Do you think uh, just sheer volume helps, like 41 albums? You think you can't help but have success at that level? No, I don't. 
no, because sometimes I mean, think, I think of two ways. Sometimes just putting another album out is kind of like an albatross. I mean, one could say, well, you know, if you wasn't successful or whatever uh, at a certain point, well, you know, what the hell is he doing that still? The other side of it is that recording is an addiction. Mm. And it's, it's a fascinating addiction. And that, you know, just continuing the theme of the look, I love designing albums. I love the whole package. I liked it better when it was an album and not a CD. And um, I just, I find the whole thing fascinating because it is like putting out a collection of short stories. For sure. And, and it's really addicting. And I, like right now, it, I'm doing these, these new albums really in uh, the crash of the paradigm because uh, you can't, you, it's very difficult to sell your album anymore. You know, they don't even put CD players in cars or CD ports on, on your computer. So I'm doing it in, in the face of a crash, but I'm doing it as an act of faith and also as part of addiction. I can't help myself. And yeah, but each album is like a little piece of art because I've looked through a lot of yours and there's so much detail in, in the artwork and in the liner notes and everything. And, and I can tell that all of that is important to you and it shows in the work. It's also, you know, having 41 albums, it's a great way to document and, and your work and even move on from some of the stuff you put out if you want. It's just now it's out there. I, I do. I care very much when yeah. I'm putting an album out. Yeah, and you it know. shows. Uh, so, but, you know, there's, a, there's also, you want to, you care for it, but you don't want to stiffen the thing so it doesn't work either. So in the studio, you have to keep this, all the, the balance between perfection and when you've got it. Sometimes when you've got it, there might be a flaw. Right, yeah, totally. You know, and it's just, you have to be constantly weighing these things. But you know, it, 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 the album on the top there, that, that, that side by each, I remember getting a review on that and someone saying, it was like the worst review I could get. Well, if you like Ian Tamblin, here's more of it. <laughs> I said, oh God, what did I do wrong on that album? But... And then I went, well, come on. I mean, on there, there's a flute piece that I had never, I'd never played Penny Whistle on an album before. And it, the flute piece was done in a whale rendering tank in Antarctica. Is that right? Yeah, which had, a, had wind coming through the top of it where it had rusted out. And it was like a four second reverb in there. And it was really, the first time I went in the tank was, was a few years before and I got a huge headache just from thinking about the the thousands of humpbacks that had been boiled down in there because on the ground where the heating all the heating rods were were in the tank were on what is a whale tank what it's like you know a, a giant oil tank only you boiled whales down in it holy shit yeah bad vibes i didn't realize that's what it was when it you was yeah so and it it's huge you know it's like a big you know like a shell oil tank yeah and it was in a place called deception bay and it was really weird because uh deception bay is a volcanic crater and it had erupted in 1967 so the whole thing was rusty and slightly tipped over on its side and 
it was it was a really spooky place and so i did this song called farewell to funerary which is a scottish whaling song and uh playing flute in it and so my answer to the reviewer was i've gone to ends of the fucking (laughs) world (laughs) to do something that is different and you're saying it's the same right (laughs) and did you just go in there and like record the flute track and then put that in or you did the whole thing no i just did it's just the flute track right because just the but their weird thing happens because because of the reverb in there it almost sounds at times where i'm playing against the reverb like i could still you can it, it was Really, I've got a couple of other outtakes that got very whale-like. Yeah, oh, cool. How important is song order on an album? Oh, it's really important. It really is important. You you know because you're arcing, you're arcing the journey. Right. Because now not only do we live in a digital age, we lived in a shuffle age, and and you know, does that yeah. take away from it a little bit? Well, of course it does. And in the same sense, there's a, there's a lot of albums that have the single on it and then eight or nine throwaways that weren't even weren't even produced to the level. It's that just a vehicle for that single. And it's a vehicle for the single. And so, you know, but this is, I'm an old fart talking about this stuff, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's it, in many ways, it's a lost battle. Yeah. But, you know, there's still people now or boutique industry of putting out albums and that but that's that's specific to a you know uh a demographic much younger than myself and i feel like regardless of how digital the world is going to get an album will always sell at the very least at live shows because it's a memento from the show it's a little piece of of whatever you can they can get you to sign it or whatever even if if because in comedies like that you you seldom sell solid albums physical albums other than at shows People might not even ever fucking listen to the thing, but they just take it as a as a thing, you know. That's true. Um, what you know, you mentioned how you know CD players, and I didn't even realize this, but until I got into a 2017 model car, and there was no more CD players in the cars, because that was always my thing. I would go, well, they're still making cars with CD players, and cars last. People keep them for five, ten years, so at least we've still got a little bit of leeway there, but they're not even making that anymore. They're not making, um, you know, input drives on on laptops. So once it is fully digital, will you, do you think you'll keep making albums? Well, I did do an instrumental album last year, Mm -hmm. which was only a download with CD Baby. That was only download only, yeah, on, and iTunes. Yeah, it's on iTunes right. too. CD Baby distributes them to, yeah, to yeah. iTunes. And so it's available there. You know, it's invisible. Yeah. Unless you're living only in, in cyberspace. So it's invisible. And I, ha- I got cards of it, but I couldn't sell those cards to people. I'd, I felt, you know, I gave them all away because they... They're not substantial. <laughs> I, I know not, exactly what you mean. It's, yeah. it's not, it's, the work hasn't been put into it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't spend any time doing the cover art or anything like that. I didn't consider that. It was, you know, and it's a lot cheaper. I'll tell you that much. Oh, for sure it is, but, yeah. But, um, you know, I mean, some some of these albums over my head sold over a hundred thousand copies you know i think 
with the instrumental album, and it's a good album, mm-hmm. it's only sold 200. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it's harder to sell things online because it's non-tangible. That's that's the it, whole it thing. It is not. It, that's the thing. So it's it. We're kind of caught. Uh, I don't think I don't think young people are caught. They're they're working it out. It's our problem. Right. It's our. It's my problem as a, as a person who's seventy years old. Yeah, I know? do think they will work it out because it is kind of in that in between period right now between the physical and the fully digital, and they're trying to make that transition in a way. Well, the writing was on the wall in, I think, 2005. I was in England, and I saw Prince's album come out with the Sunday newspaper. Is that right? Yeah. It was a giveaway. Really? Yeah, and I think I think that Radiohead did something similar. You two did that. They, If you had an iPhone or iOS or iTunes, they just, all of a sudden you woke up one morning, you had U2's latest album. That's right. That's right. So, and then I, the people from Radiohead or whatever said, we'll make our money on the t-shirts. Right. Well, what do you, you know, at the same time, uh, <laughs> I just, I find that amusing. What are you, what are you doing? Are you, are you, are you producing music or t-shirts? Yeah, are you in the clothes business or yeah, music business? Yeah. And yeah. I guess you are, as we talked, as I mentioned earlier before, we are in the clothing business. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, when you two, and it's funny because people, if you give something away, if someone accepts it, that's fine. But if you shove it down down people's throat, that never goes over well. Because even you two fans were upset at them for, for doing that. They yes, do be- because, because Bono, uh, you know, who sits next to God, <laughs> has always railed against kind of corporateness and then, right. then turned around and did this corporate thing. So, yeah. you know... A man's greatness can only be assessed by the number of contradictions he embraces. And Bono was a great man. <laughs> the uh, instrumentals, um, that was a collection of stuff you had for over years. Some some newer recordings, some that was floating around. And yeah. Just, yeah. And, and is that, because you said you sold 200 copies of that or whatever, is that just a way of of documenting that and and measuring your body of work in a way and just putting it out there and then moving it on because it is just kind of floating around in there? Um, I wanted to do it for two, a couple of reasons. Uh, One, um, my hands aren't working as well as they used to. And so I wanted to get those pieces down while I still could do them. Um, And also... Uh, another thing, people have asked me um, for other reasons to do instrumentals for film soundtracks, and so I I did them for years, you know. Uh, so I just got them together as a collection, and since that time, people have now access to that. So there's secondary reasons for putting a CD out or um, uh, a project like that, because then. Other people can go, can go, and it's happened. Like there's been three or four people have said, "I'm doing this. Can I use this?" Right. So it it works out that way. Yeah. It works out different ways. So if it's out there in some way, um, it's a good thing. Yeah, of course. Let's talk a little bit. I mean, we're gonna bounce around all over the place, but because you mentioned theater, you've written how many plays? I, your website says eighteen, but if is it more? sixteen? Sixteen. Okay. How? That to me seems 
Like two things seem daunting to me, writing a book and writing a play. Like how does one, how do you do that? How do you get the inspiration with all this writing music? You say you've, I guess you want to always be a short story writer. Does this come into play uh, in that? Because it's a whole different beast. You write dialogue, you have to write, I mean, it's, uh, you know, have to portray a certain emotion and whatnot. How the hell do you do all that? <laughs> well, um, in many cases, people give you the project. Okay. And a deadline. But how do you even get into that door? I mean, you're this great singer-songwriter, and then does someone approach you and go, I, I want you to write a play? Like, how does that work? I guess it was kind of like that. Mm-hmm. I, I, a period of my life, I, I was the sort of musician in residence at Great Canadian Theatre Company. So I was doing soundtracks for four or five plays a year, and I did that from 1982 to 92. And it was a great opportunity. And somewhere along the line, I mean, when you're involved in 25 plays plus other plays with Young People's Theatre in Toronto, I went from Great Canadian Theatre Company to basically doing the same thing at Young People's Theatre in Toronto from 92 to 98. And you bump into a lot of plays. Yeah. And and I had friends who were writing plays and I... um, had enough conceit to say I could do that yeah and so I did it yeah because that is still a bit of a jump to go from writing a soundtrack which is right in your wheelhouse I mean you're a musician to then writing the actual script of a play yeah there's um there is a similarity though uh in that a, a song is a moment and a play I think is a series of moments that you're moving moving in time but it is each scene is 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 kind of a moment of that, and then built into that that moment is a transition to get you to the next thing, and so the story's told. So it's not it's not that far away. And the other thing that's similar is at least in the plays that I've written, you're trying to to have a certain naturalism in your dialogue. And I love listening to the way people talk and so on and, and sort of copying their voices. And that's not dissimilar to some of the character stuff that I've done, like that, just referencing that song again, the, uh, Through Lace Curtains. I love being two old biddies gossiping about Emily Carr behind yeah. a curtain, you know. And so that is a little, it's a little mini play. So, and... It's just fun to do. I, you know, I've really enjoyed doing the plays because you can, you, you cop an attitude and a character, and and away you go. Have all you have all of your plays been produced? Uh, all but one. Wow. All but one. I mean, that's a crazy record because I mean, there are playwrights out there that just write and write plays, and I mean, a lot of them never see the light of day. What was the first one that you wrote? Uh, the first one I wrote was Legends of the Northern Swamp, the story of Emily Brontosaurus. <laughs> a dinosaur yeah, that yeah. found in northwestern Ontario. Yeah. And had to be protected because some American hunters discovered her. Well so had, not not the remains of a dinosaur, but no, an actual dinosaur. Emma, Emily Brontosaurus was was she was very close friends with the, the sleeping giant. 
How do you get inspired? Do you smoke weed? How do you get inspiration for, for something like that? <laughs> no, it's always that's I don't smoke weed because I already have a very loose grip on reality as it is. <laughs> yeah. No, I was just you know I, I had I came up with a number of characters you know like Mick Badger and uh, uh, Frank Frog, uh, Mia Sparrow, mm. and I just you know they were in, in, so I I needed a play for them to play in. Yeah, and you've um, Frank Frog. Just reminded me, you've written a, an album. It was sort of a kids' album. Yeah, uh, the uh, Frogs Night Out. Frogs Night Out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> how, how how does that come about? I'm I'm shocked that you don't smoke weed or do mushrooms or acid or anything like that. No, no. Well, that just speaks to your your mind, your genius, I guess. <laughs> not, not, not a genius. It's just you know idle idle time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, because you do what you do. Your lifestyle requires you to travel a lot. Yeah, I was going to say this. It's the, you know, it may seem zany, but it's not. Like, I have a play, like, I did two plays one, Legends in the Northern Swamp, and then The Adventures of Frank Frog. And uh, I have another one uh, now that I want to do, and in which the same characters find themselves in the Northern Wood um, meeting up with uh, ex- extinct characters okay like the uh you know like the great auk (laughs) (laughs) you know all these things these these characters you know the arctic plover uh various other things um masked dawn or woolly mammoth things that have disappeared and usually at our hand Mm -hmm. so i wanted to do a play about that so that folds in you know you go up north or you find yourself in fogo or Twilling Gate, and you see a statue of an auk there, you know, last you know, last seen alive in, you know, the 1800s or something like what that. What the hell is an auk? An auk is a, is a flightless um, alcid, uh, the largest alcid. It was like a penguin. Oh, yeah. And In the Arctic. In the Arctic, oh. yeah. And they were kind of hapless birds. They couldn't fly, so people, they just, the bass sailors and... Anybody else who came along just whacked them on the head, and that was it. It's depressing to think of what we've done, because, you know, some some species would have gone extinct regardless, but a lot more than none at our hand. I just read that the white rhino, there's one male left in the world. Three, there's one male, two females, and two that are in captivity in zoos. And that just, it's so depressing. Well, men around the world need to get it up. Yeah. So they need the rhino horn. That's right. That's right. And that's that's literally what it is in uh, well, that's Asian medicine or whatever. They use the horns and yeah, grind for, them up and for mojo. That's fucked up. It's like it's like the, <laughs> that's exactly the right word. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like these uh, people get these ideas in their head. These create these I don't know mystical kind of things that we are, do are not based on science. Then they decide to murder all of these animals. This I was reading again. This white male rhino that's left. They actually cut off his horn to to save him to save him to divert poachers. But he still has twenty four seven two armed guards around him. It's somewhere mm. in Africa. Well, on the last day of the passenger pigeon, there were a quarter of a million of them. On the last day, yeah. And out, how did they all die? Out, People went outside of St. Louis, Missouri, and with wagons, and shot them and brought them back. Holy shit! At them. 
Oh my God. Yeah. Does that. A it, quarter of a million birds they killed in one day. That's insane. Yeah. All of them. Literally all of all them. All of them. All of them. There's, there's this. Um, there ain't no more. It's sort of like Randy Newman's song. Yeah. You know, great nations of Europe coming through. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hide your daughters, hide the groceries too. Excuse me, great nations of Europe coming through. Yeah, it's depressing. And we still are. Yeah, we still are. We're still coming through. There's this uh, comic, Tom Papa, who does this bit about, uh, like, what if we're not supposed to, like, eat certain things? Like, he, he does this, I'm going to butcher it, but he does this uh, act out of, of like, uh, Jesus coming down and then going back and recording uh, reporting to God, being like, oh, my God, you're not going to believe this, but they're eating everything no, and we we really are, and it's depressing. But does that does that inspire art for you? We were talking about this yesterday, or it came up. You know, oh, that's depressing. Let's move on. Um, it is depressing, but how it affects you, it doesn't matter. It can be re- people are either depressed or they're not depressed. I mean, how do you wake up in the morning? Are you depressed? Right. Are you ready to get on with it? Even if it's, even if it's dark and we have idiots ruling the world right now we still get up Mm -hmm. and we still go do it 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 in some sense it's sort of like i forget life is good that movie you know about the guy in the in the nazi germany and the and he just he just kept being optimistic things got worse and worse and i don't think that's being stupid I, i i it's just how we're wired it's just how we're wired, and some people are wired to just look stupid, mm-hmm. but, but we can't help ourselves. And I think, oddly enough, I'm, even though I'm very aware of the darkness, I st- still will rail against it. Yeah. You know, still, we still get up. You still get up. I mean, yeah. you have to at the, uh, at the end of the day. Um, again, back to... Uh, how your lifestyle makes you be on the road a lot and i mean traveling for music for for whatever how do you because you have a family you have a a wife and kids how many kids do you have two but they're growing up they're grown they're grown Mm -hmm. yeah but i mean you've been a musician your whole life so Mm -hmm. how how have you maintained family life while being on the road a lot i think you should interview amanda yeah (laughs) (laughs) i do well, she's on the line. Uh, no. <laughs> no, it has been her. Yeah, to tell you the truth, that that has allowed me to do it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, she's, you know, I could say Amanda's a very independent person, and you know, at various times has has said, "How can I miss you if you won't go away?" But that's, you know, that's a joke. Right. She has. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's. I think. Anyone who lives with a person who is very, very passionate comes to, I could be in trouble for this, I don't know, comes to the conclusion that that person, being me, loves two things. I love Amanda, but I also love music. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is a twin love affair. Right. And also, I mean, recognizing your passion uh, on her behalf will be, there's got to be on some level that she must know she can't stop you from from doing it or, you know, that would... No, there's been various, you know, confrontations along the road about that. Yeah. But, uh, um, 
again, because of her great patience and uh, strength of character, we're still together. Yeah. How did you end up in this part, in these parts? Um, after we came back from that tour across North America, I kind of looked, again, this is this, this sort of Ian trying to figure his way through things. I kind of looked at what was central, you know, in, in Canada and then in Ontario. If I moved to Ottawa, I'd have access to Montreal and Toronto and play in Ottawa. So there was some sort of sentience about it. And then I lived in Ottawa, and we sort of always had a dream of being in the country. So came out here and make a long story short, found a place that was a hundred dollars a month. And I don't think that I could have m remained a musician without that. Yeah. The cigarette and Hewitt Bostock um, basically gave us the house mm -hmm. and we lived in that house for 20 years. Is that right? Yeah. That's where your kids grew up and you raised your family? Until we kind of grew out of it and also the animals uh, were taking it over as well. Is that right? Oh, yeah. What, what sort of animals? Um, well, we had 25 snakes at you one point in the house. Wild uh, snakes just came in? Uh, uh, they or were... Well, they didn't think of themselves as wild. They were just snakes. <laughs> <laughs> but they did make themselves at home. And we also had a skunk that, a pair of skunks that took to breeding underneath our bedroom, which was really exciting. We had pretty much everybody, everybody came in. Wow. So this is where some of the plays came from <laughs> yeah. about animals. I mean, they were amongst us all the time. Little do they know they're now a star of a play. And yeah. So they they were taking the house down to its foundations. I mean, we're in Ga in in Wakefield. Everybody knows about this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sooner or later, the animals will win. That's right. And uh, when you were raising your family, did you at any point bring them on the road with you? I I've I did. Uh, took separately. Took Walker and Matthew on different trips. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And how long would you go? How long were your longest stints away? Oh, recently. Well. Oh. And before they were born, like, it'd be a couple months, mm -hmm. you know, and on a bus. Yeah. The Northern Music Circuit. Woo. That was, that was, that was a long time wow. on the road. Yeah. Every night, every, you'd do a gig and the next day on the bus to the next town. Wow. $100. The circuit was $100 a night. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, part of you, you must, I mean, because it's your passion, you love it and you're happy, you're playing a different crowd every night, but part of you, part of your heart is at home. Does that weigh on you at all when you're on the road? You can't think about that. Right. You can only be in the place that you are. That's right. Oh, that's good. Or it'll rip you apart. Do you ever, did you ever at any point in your life rely on substances to help cope with that or, or like drink? I mean, it's so easy. We're in an industry that's inundated with substance and, and alcohol and drugs. And, and did you ever go down that road? No, but I would say that I'm a working alcoholic now. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, aren't we all? Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm saying, but, you know, yeah, I I drink every day. Yeah. But I don't know that I'm sloppy. Right. But <laughs> While you're working on your 41st album, uh, 40th and 41st album, I'd say I have a fucking drink. I say you earned it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's your drink of choice? Do you drink beer or, or like booze? Uh, wine and, and uh, single malt. Oh, yeah? Mm. Oh, yeah. But uh, it's usually... Expensive taste. Well, yeah, that's why I look forward to Christmas and good friends. 
There's and a- I also have a song called Angel Share, which usually can can get me a malt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I if I whinge enough about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm used to drinking beer, and then there was some some uh, scotch left over here, and holy shit, that's a different kind of beast altogether. Yeah, you have to be careful with single malt because it can be an angry drink. Whew. It can be. You can get you can get cross on that. You can have a few beer, no problem, and then you have just an ounce or two of single malt, and it's just like whoa. You feel it's like a heavy kind of. Yeah, it's fire. It is fire. Mm-hmm. It's good fire, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the best, best malt I ever had was at Irene's in Ottawa. And I had just driven back from a gig in Peterborough, and I just wanted to get home. But I needed a decompression because I had gone very fast at 120 on Highway 7, which I shouldn't do. But I did. And there were no deer. And I got Irene's, and I had a Laphroaig at 2 o'clock. And all resistance was down, and it was just the... I mean, it's a rough, it's a rough malt. Yeah. So, but it was just perfect. But the circumstances make the it The circumstances, much any, always circumstances. Make yeah. It. Let's talk about your uh, adventurer side. Okay. So you, you take people on tours, is that it? Um... No, I mean, I, the adventure side is kind of a thing because I think the age of exploration is long over. Mm-hmm. And I've been on expeditions with people who are, the demographic is 40 to 75 years old. That's not going to be exploring that much, you know. Um, but we do go on interesting trips. I have been working for this company, Adventure Canada, and others for 23 years. Is that right? And before that, I was an artist in residence uh, in the Chukchi Sea, north of the Bering Strait, uh, studying the feeding habits of whales and walruses. So I was diving up there. So that was was exciting. So it's not, these things all dovetail, you know, you you say, you know, I I write about trees and rocks. Well, the trees and rocks, the whales and the walruses were kind of presented to me in a kind of serendipitous way. And so... I mean, if you're presented, if you're sitting on an ice floe trying to record whales and the whales come up to you right to the side of the ice floe and, and are looking at you, and uh, it, it's it's honorific. You should write a song about <laughs> those, <laughs> those guys. Yeah. You know, if they've, they've given their presence to you in that circumstance, well, you should write something. So... You write a song about a whale, yeah, and you know, and the next thing you know, there's some, you know, guy at a folk festival says, "Here's Tamblin. What he writes about is rocks and trees and trees and rocks." Well, yeah. I'm guilty. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of like a, you said a twin love affair. It's almost like a triplet love affair with with music, Amanda and uh, and not in that order necessarily, and uh, Mother Nature. Yeah, I mean, t- it's. It's out there. It's fantastic. It's who, who we are. We've always this stupid us, and I forget who did it. Saint Francis or Augustine or someone uh, made this division that they is they, and we is we. Well, we is they. We yeah. is animals. There is no division. 
we've made the division. We've, you know, that separation uh, that we are different than. Well, and we have dominion over. What a lot of trouble that's got us into. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's dreadful, the trouble that, 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 maybe the misinterpretation of the line, but, uh, uh, you know, does, uh, you know, I was in this place in Lethbridge last year playing at a house that turned out the guy was a fundamental, fundamentalist minister, and he had 25 uh, animals on his wall from South Africa. And I said, well, you know, well, how did you come to think you could take these animals? And he said, the Lord gave us dominion. He would want us to do that. And I went, I left that place the next day, and I just went, I just muttered all the way down the road, my God, oh my God, oh my God. I didn't realize what I was saying, but it was just unbelievable, you know, that people still believe that they can take, just take. Just take. Just take. To the detriment of literally of species, like it's, we said, that are that just wiped. It's for us to take. And I mean, you know, I hate to say it. I mean, Justin Trudeau said, do you think we're going to leave the oil on the ground? Well, Justin, yes, we should. Yeah. The only way that we're going to move on to something different is to leave it in the ground. Last two weeks ago, I flew over the tar sands, which are as big as Prince Edward Island. It is an unbelievable scar that will never, ever be healed on the earth. It is, it is grotesque, yeah. and we're doing it. And, you know, yes, I'm guilty. I was in a plane. I'm flying a plane. I'm driving a car. But it's got to be taken away from us. We've got to move on we do do you think we'll see that in our lifetime oh i hope so i mm. we've, you know there's so many things that we've got to do in our lifetime or maybe not mine but my kids mm-hmm. but i don't want to die before or you know whether it's actually putting good water into reserves <laughs> yeah yeah or 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 transitioning to to electrical and solar power we have to do it yeah, we're yeah. We're, if there's any if there's any meaning to the word stewardship, we have to. Right. Yeah, because I was going to ask you how how much of an advocate for climate and stuff that you are, being that you're so um, you know nature driven, I guess. Um, well, I've been involved in pretty near every stupid campaign you could be, and watched watched the time go by from you know being involved in it since. 1976, and, and the period that where we might have done something just went by. That period from '86 to '94. Yeah, and, they and say now we're at a point of no return as far it, as the carbon in the atmosphere. No, and, it's 300 years if you if you shut shut the, the exhaust off right now. 300 years before the the amount of carbon in the atmosphere would return to. Yeah, yeah, and people say it's not. You know, Earth goes through these cycles every so often it's not man-made that's complete complete bullshit it's not so much that it's the rate the rate of changes that's just is, it is unprecedented because it has gone through these cycles over years shifting sure. degrees here and there but not at this rate because of the the carbon that we're pumping into uh, the air yeah there, i mean there was a period around the great meteor explosion about 64 65 million years ago well there's a period of before that, where the fires kind of swept the world. And at the time, the world had 25%. It had 
it had more oxygen in it. Right. Uh, yeah. And so the fires just went and went and went. Went. Yeah. And and yes, those those things happen, and we've had you know Permian ages and great extinctions and all the rest of this, but we're heading for one now, mm-hmm. and we can't we can't do anything like we have to adapt to climate change, but we sure can. You know, we have to stop. Have to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, adapt, but at the same time, it's like, how do we adapt? I mean, this if you go out in the sun for more than seven minutes, you'll die. If, it, like, unprotected, it's crazy. <laughs> and the, the shorelines are getting, you know... It feels like we're living in biblical times right now with the, the, with the hurricanes and the earthquakes and the threats of annihilation from w- world leaders. It's... What's yeah. going to happen to us? I'm scared, Ian, is what I'm saying. Uh, you, yeah, you do. Well, here's the, here's the, here's the, the cure. Not the cure, but here's an answer. And that's, this is, we'll get to the adventure part. When you go on the adventures, when you go on a canoe trip, when you go away, the sun comes up, the day passes, you deal with weather and um, wind is important, rain is important, Trump isn't important. The sun comes up in the east, sets in the west. You might be concerned when you see some kind of a mushroom cloud beside the sun coming up. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but it's amazing how fast things drop off right. in the world, you know, and then you can pick them up. You can pick them up again when you return, almost like picking up a disease. Mm-hmm. You are hooked into the the contemporary world, which is really fast, it's neurotic, it demands your attention to listen, to hold your your phone, your iPhone 10, and now they offer an imagination on that phone that you can escape reality <laughs> to, which is very nice of them. Yeah. <laughs> but it really, everybody's so wired in now that it's... I think that is a disease in itself. That is, and that to me is depressing because there is no going back on that unless there is some sort of nuclear attack that, you know, uh, eliminates all sort of you know connection, but, but and we somehow survive it and then go back to... There, there's no going back from all that technology. Well, part of the, the reason that I got into all this was because of the Cuban, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis many years ago, mm-hmm. 1962. And it, the whole world kind of broke down for me at that point. It didn't work. Nothing worked. My family didn't work. The world didn't work. I didn't believe John Kennedy any more than I believed in Nikita Khrushchev. I didn't believe Fidel Castro. So left, right, and center were non-options. And yet I saw in the folk community, this idea of community, cooperation, you know, personified by someone, you know, as idealistic and naive as Pete Seeger, but still, or Woody Guthrie or whoever it was, or Dylan, who was the, who was the representative of that world at the time, or Joan Baez. And I wanted to be part of it because so much of what they were fighting for seemed to be right, whether it was uh, in the anti-nuke movement or in, in uh, 
the civil rights movement. All those things seemed right to me, and I wanted to be part of it. And I basically have been ever since, you know. And at times, one is seen as, you know, sort of goofy or whatever. But still, that sense of community um, really uh, was and is important to me still. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like you said, if that's really what you have control over and what, what we can all find comfort in is community. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're surrounded by it. doesn't matter where you are in the world. You can always uh, find that, and that's really what, what we have. And there are people against, uh, against all odds and the, and the headlines. You know, even someone who just got elected yesterday, and she's not of my political stripe, uh, Merkel, actually kept uh, an idea open in Germany. She kept, I mean, it's threatened now because of this right-wing party that's that's now in the Bundestag. But um, uh, she's, she kept it open. She said you can, and the world is changing so much that that threat, which Trump plays off of all the time, is, it, it's, it's, prescient it's real and all the rest but you have to present against it all all the way and the failure of uh of england in the last number it's a tremendously sad thing that happened with brexit with mm-hmm. england so for her to hold that off in germany which has an inclination towards the right i think was a, was an amazing thing yeah just amazing so there and don't forget like just Recently, I mean, the Berlin Wall came down, what, 88, 89. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gorbachev was in power, then Yeltsin, who drank too much, and, and, <laughs> and uh, South Africa. There were good things happening. We're now, there were good things happening in the world, and it just goes that kind of, I don't know, ebb and flow of things. We'll see other, we'll see. Good things happen again? We will. I think we will. I mean, the, uh, there was a great opportunity lost uh, during Ob- Obama's time. He was so tied up with, with assholes mm-hmm. that he, I don't think he could move. Yeah, and no, he couldn't move. I it's mean, just, that's, just a shame. That's really when the, um, the extreme divide in the states came because people uh, in Congress or in the Senate would just do the opposite of whatever he said, no matter what. Even if it's something that was in there for their best interest or whatever, because he would bring it forward, or they would just go against it no matter what. So that's when the real uh, you know, divide came and that, um, that gap there, which is now wider than ever. And this is now the world uh, we live in, Christ. Uh, <laughs> um, well, you must be a comedian because you, you're depressed. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's what they say. That's what they tell me. There was a there's this comic buddy of mine. There's this study that came out in the National Post like two, three years ago. And it was saying that all comedians have um, a psychopath element to them. And uh, my buddy, a comic, Peter Anthony, goes... Yeah, I read that thing about us all being psychopaths. He goes, that's, that's insane. I want to find that reporter and chop his fucking head off. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ian Tamlin, I could talk to you uh, forever. I know we're at a bit of a time, uh, time crunch here. You got to get 
the studio and work on those albums. And uh, but do you want to play us out? You want to play a little something, something for us? Sure. Across the sea, the horses wander in the mirror grass, and the iris quiver in the breeze. White sands shift to reshape the world, grain by grain, endlessly. Tomorrow will not be what it was today, it will be. What it will be, let it go, let it all fall away. Fools may claim to rule the world, but the sun, the sand, the sea will have their way. Footsteps fall much slower now As I kneel by starry falls The bearing and the Solomon seal Know what once was lost Or they grow amongst lost sailors And they grow amongst the seals And they grow through the horse's bones and they wave across these fields I'll let it go let it all fall away fools may claim to rule this world but the sun, the sand the sea the sun the sand the sea will have their way beautiful it's a bit early in the morning but it's okay it sounded great it sounded amazing uh i like that little tinny tin tier voice this early in the morning <laughs> Um, what, uh, you wrote that on Sable Island. Yeah. I like that. The, the sands shift to shape the world. Mm -hmm. Cause that is on Sable Island. It's always a moving yeah. thing. It's yeah. always. Changing. And that's, I mean, to get back to sort of where the adventure falls into the, uh, into the songwriting. I mean, the science is that about 10 kilometers of, of. Sable Island change or lost to the ocean and come back again each each year yeah or each several years in a cycle of sorts and so it's there it is the poetry is in the science yeah 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 and was that on a like one of those quote adventures that yeah. you went therefore yeah. you went down with people just yeah. to in this case there was like 50 people completely horsewomen yeah 
a whole other topic, which I'm not going near. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how long did you guys stay there for? Just five days. Wow. We got managed to get on the island uh, every day, five days. Okay. Oh, you weren't staying on? No, you can't. Oh, where were no. you staying? On a ship. Oh, wow. Oh, you can't stay because there's a small, but there's like, it's like uh, researchers and scientists that stay yeah, there. Yeah, there's, there's maybe 30 people on the island, maybe even less. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 350 horses. Yeah. So, no, it's a national park and yeah. uh, protected. And so you can go on it for hours and hopefully that your impact is not great. And, uh, and so when you go on these adventures, you, you, you know, find a lot of inspirations for the songs. For example, the Four Coast Project, there was a four albums uh-huh. you recorded. And um, you want, did you go to those four coasts and write the music? Oh, yeah. And uh, what inspires something like that? And you just go, I want this unique idea to, for a project? Or? <laughs> well, I wanted to surround the country with song. Mm-hmm. And um, just sort of, I had been to all these places, you know, far-flung places, and I had the material. So I just, I, I did the songs. But what I didn't realize is that nobody was interested. <laughs> is that right? No. I mean, it might have been during a period where, you know, we're not, right now in Canada, I have to say, we're not interested in, we're interested in our urbanity and our comparison to the United States. That's a big one. And um, so we're not, we're not looking out, you know, we have token things in the Arctic and so on, but it's, it's meaningless. Mm Mm-hmm. And what's the process there when you go to uh, like Lake Superior or the Arctic or the West Coast and uh, or in uh, Newfoundland or w- you get there? Are you there indefinitely until the songs come, or do you have a set time? No, to force no, it? no. It's in most cases like Superior. I had canoed on Superior for fifteen years, mm-hmm. and the Labrador Coast. I had been down up and down the coast eight to ten times. The Arctic, I've been through the Northwest Passage 14 times. So it's it's cumulative. Right, I'd get, got it. Okay. I get one or two songs each time. Not that I was necessarily looking for it until this project came, and then, yes, I was looking for songs. Right. Um, and sometimes when you're looking, they don't happen, and other times they do. I mean, sometimes they're there. I mean, there's differences between muse-driven songs, songs that just come to you, and other songs which are... Okay. You go find. Got to find this song. This song is this thing needs to be written about. When you say you've been up and down the Labrador coast eight, ten times, doing what? Different things. Different things. One time I was up there in the Torngats teaching some kids in a summer summer program, a week of songwriting. And another case, I was uh, an adjudicator at a drama festival in Goose Bay, Happy Valley, where all these high school kids came in with their plays from all over the Labrador coast. That was, that was fun. And in other cases, I've been with Adventure Canada doing, right. doing trips up and down the coast. And how do you teach songwriting if, if a lot of it is like this muse thing where it just kind of comes to you? Is there because there are certain rules to writing music? 
Well, I think so. And I think you can, there's, I mean, you can still work on the craft. You can hope for the muse, but I think the muse appreciates hard work. Right. And at a certain point, you can write a song that's a craft-driven song, which is indivisible from one that is, that's inspired by the muse. You won't be able to know the difference. Yeah. I don't, you know. Do you get, do you get great joy from teaching people songwriting? Because you get to, I mean, when you teach them, do you get them to write a song and you see that you kind of brought that out of them? I do, but at the same time, I realize that it affects my output. I've done enough. Is it because it's, it I, takes a, an insane amount of energy well, I'm to in, do that? I'm investing in them, right. in their creativity. Right. So uh, well, my direction is totally towards, I, I taught at Carleton, my, I didn't write a song for three years mm-hmm. because everything was invested in, in their writing songs. Yeah. So I was helping them with that. So I didn't write it. Has there anybody that you've taught songwriting to that have gone on to do like amazing things? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure they're all I amazing. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and how they do amazing things might not necessarily be in their songwriting. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> right, right. I hope they've all got done amazing things. Right. Uh, yeah, there's some. I'm not going to say any names or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be, it would, would jinx them if I you know, took credit for their songwriting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but their song people have been influenced, I guess. Right. You know? Well, Ian Tamblin, I'll let you go, but I definitely want to do a part two uh, at some point if you're down because we've barely scratched the surface when it comes to the actual songs and, and uh, what brought you in here. We just kind of went and uh, where it took us and we ended up here. We have. It's uh, been pleasant. You've s- surrounded the country with music and you've surrounded now my house with music. So, <laughs> so. Well, keep the, keep the albums for now. Yeah, okay. And I'm interested in your, your thoughts on Machine Works. Yeah, well, actually, I have uh, listened to it uh, a little bit. I didn't get, I didn't have get the chance to listen to it cover to cover, but uh, let's talk. Actually, before we go here, it sounded like we were going to go a few times before, but we don't mm. have to. It's time. But there's no limit, other than your personal uh, <laughs> <laughs> obligations. Yeah, I've got five minutes. Okay, Machine Works. How did that come about? I know you kind of talked about it um, on Friday, but tell the listeners. Well, I had done three three sort of environmental albums I did, did over my head, then Magnetic North, and then Antarctica. And during that period, I was constantly editing out human sounds from the natural environment. I realized, you know, as I said earlier in the interview, we're part of it. Mm-hmm. We are the environment. And so I decided to do an album about the noise that we create and we we are defilers as much as we eulogize nature or i do you know there was a time in my life i liked nothing better than putting pedal to the metal and and dragging my father's car Mm -hmm. we like big fires we are we we love nature and we hate it yeah but just by our action alone yeah, and, and and it seems like an extreme thing, but look at how many how many animals have you killed on a highway? Oh God, yeah, a lot. And how many do you think people are aiming at those animals? Right. They are. Yeah, they are. I'm sorry to say that. Anyway, I decided just to t- embrace the defiler. 
to take a look at the big noises that we make. So I went to DeFasco to the steel mill there. I went to to Valienco and Sudbury. Went to construction sites and 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 composed an album made up of those sounds. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Even a motorcycle at one point uh, I heard in there. And, yeah, uh, that's going up Montreal Hill in in, in on Highway 17. Yeah, yeah. it's. Um, it's remarkable. It almost gets this uh, techno feel to it or something like this. That was intentional. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And there's one piece on there, which I think is a modern folk song. It's it's this uh, uh, train song, um, Short History of Trains. And there's a folk singer by the name of Jackie Washington from Hamilton, and he worked on the trains in the 30s. And so it's his story telling it. Uh, and I got this rocking of the trains and everything else. So... I really think that's a kind of postmodern folk song, mm-hmm. but uh, um, and I'm very proud that to have done that. Uh, the project actually took about 14 years to do. Is that right? Yeah. Just collecting the sound, sounds yeah. and yeah, yeah. That's but we we it, it it was met with curiosity for sure because people just didn't understand the context that it was in, and I I go. Okay, well, there's the problem. Right, and the the song titles are very. Uh, some of them are super just literal, like G eight Quebec City. Mm-hmm. That's from the G eight in Quebec City. Yep, just recording sounds. The banging. Right. The rhythmic banging. Oh, yeah. on, on the flags. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. It's when they're. And how do you put that all together that it sounds musically that there's a melody? I mean, that's. <laughs> that's the whole rub, right? Well, yeah, that's what you were looking for all the time. I, yeah. You know, you're just looking for it. Yeah. You know, I, like the first one, I forget, Blast Furnace. Yep. I just, the sound I wanted to get, when, there's a, a sound uh, that the Blast Furnace makes that sounds like a, you know... Uh, it's like a sun, deep, it, you feel it in a, your bones. It's a rasp. It's like a dinosaur would make that. So when right. I came to do the music, I, I distorted... Uh, the sound to have it sound like like that, yeah, and and had it very primitive and 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 then I went from there to to the smelter, and there's these three rods that are have a dedicated line coming from Niagara Falls, and they basically put the pig iron and then the rough metal everything else in there in this cauldron and boil it, and. And so they let me in there to record it. And like it's just unbelievable sound and electrical current. I was completely screwed up for days. Is that right? I was I was ahead of the of the plexiglass recording this stuff. And they said you can't stay in there too long. Well I, I was I was wired like yeah. for days afterwards because <laughs> and like it was just it was so powerful, mm-hmm. so powerful. Just so. Wow, machine works. Is that available online, or how do people? <laughs> yeah, I think you could get it online. Yeah, look, look for it. It's this was a case. Cool. This was a case where I put every every single uh, one of these covers together. Is that right? Yeah, I. Uh, that's rusted. Uh, the W is is rusted iron mm-hmm. and i and so i glued that in behind it everything else like literally by hand by every hand. one of them no yeah, way yeah i did a thousand of them holy shit yeah yeah well wow, that's pretty cool 
Yeah. Well, Ian Tamblin, you're a good man to ride the river with. This has been uh, great. I appreciate you doing the podcast. Go to www.tamblin, T-A-M-B-L-Y-N.com for all of your Ian Tamblin needs. <laughs> and uh, much, much appreciated, my friend. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And watch your head. It's such a beautiful waste of time. And there it is, another one in the books. How was that? That was unbelievable, huh? There it is. Right? 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 Thanks to you for listening. Thanks for uh, always listening. Thanks to my guest, Ian Tamblin. That was awesome. And uh, thanks to, uh, yeah, just you. You do you. You keep doing you. Follow on Instagram uh, and Twitter at JD Comedy Hour. Like the Facebook page.com slash JD Comedy Hour. Oh, God, we're back tomorrow. Wakefield Sessions continues tomorrow with David Taggart. It's a good one. They're all good, so keep tuning in. Keep subscribing on iTunes and sharing and reviewing. And, and you know what? You're just you're the best. I appreciate it. I love you. And as always, watch your head. The land is bitter, but the fallen is all so sweet. It's just a waste of time. A beautiful waste of time. It's just a waste of time.
do me a quick favor yeah. and just do, uh, so I'll show you, this is the name of the show. This was my, I painted my tire. Oh yeah, no way. And got, and then drove over some fresh asphalt and then got my ladder and paint. Shut up, no way. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> could you, uh, so the, the show is the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast. So just, could you do an ID for me? Just, hey, everybody, this is Ian Tamblin, and you're listening to the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Ian Tamblin, and you are listening to the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast. Beauty. Thank you, my man. That was awesome. <laughs>